This is an ABC podcast. But it's said that it wants a more independent public service, that it wants to go back to the idea of public servants giving frank and fearless advice and saving the government from itself where necessary. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm David Spears, the host of Insiders and National Political Lead at the ABC. And I'm joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri Nations here at Parliament House in Canberra. And I'm back in the chair filling in for PK this week, which means Fran Kelly is here. Yes, she is. I'm here on Gadigal land of the Aroa Nation and after a jam-packed few days at the NATO summit and on the sidelines, as is the way of these things, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is on his way home as we record this on Thursday morning. There were some significant deals and announcements made during this international sojourn. It was a pretty quick one. We're going to be joined soon by Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent at the Saturday Paper, to break it down a bit. But David, I think it would be remiss of us not to start the podcast this week on the biggest story of the political week. Actually, it kicked off back on Friday last week, Mm. the absolutely blistering robo-debt Royal Commission report. The government received the 990-page report on Friday, released it almost immediately, which is not all that usual. We might talk about that. It's pretty easy to see why they wanted to, though, because... Mm. You know, apart from lofty principles like transparency and accountability, RoboDebt was a scheme scheme completely made by the last government. In fact, Scott Morrison, I think he was Social Services Minister at the time, was really the architect of it. The Commissioner's findings were scathing. Commissioner Catherine Holmes found the scheme was a crude and cruel mechanism. It was a costly failure in both human and economic terms. It was neither legal nor fair. The government didn't miss either. Why would they? It was a free kick. Here's Anthony Albanese handing down the report. The robodebt scheme was a gross betrayal and a human tragedy. It pursued debt recovery against Australians who in many cases had no debt to pay. It was wrong. It was illegal. It should never have happened and it should never happen again. Prime Minister last week, and I think there's fair agreement on that last point, David. This report has really shaken the political sphere and the public service Mm. to their core, hasn't it? Look, it has. I think this was a really significant report for a few reasons. We'll get to what it means for the individuals that have been, um, well, had adverse findings really against them and and some referrals as well to um, various uh, agencies and and police uh, too, as well as the National Anti-Corruption Commission. But I say significant because Well, it did a couple of big things. One, it really tried to call out this political tactic that we've seen for, well, years, for decades, really, in Australia of punching down, beating up on welfare Mm. recipients and really said that needs to stop. And and, and that really does lie at the heart of this whole effort to crack down on welfare rorters. You know, it, it was seen as clever politics as well as a revenue raiser. It turned out, well, to be neither, let's be frank. But I think the other really significant thing this report does, it goes to that interaction or intersection between ministers and the public service. Now, Fran, as you know, we often speculate about that relationship. We see glimpses of how it manifests. We see how it might have changed over the decades. I think this report provided a really searing insight into how some senior public servants, certainly not all, but some, 
put the interests of their political masters ahead of the public interest with devastating consequences. What the Royal Commission's called out is the need to get back to having a robust public service that can push back on its political masters. And you need the will of the government of the day. So it's a message to the incumbent government as well as future governments. You need a government that is willing to allow the public service to be that, to play that role. And I think that was really important. And that's something we need to, I think, keep coming back to. It is one of those less tangible but really important changes that is required. And this robot debacle has just been an awful example of what that can lead to if the public service is simply willing or its senior leaders is simply willing to do the bidding of the political masters. Mm. Um, But on the individuals, uh, Fran, former ministers Alan Tudge, Christian Porter, Stuart Robert all had uh, came in for a fair bit of criticism in the report, but none more so than Scott Morrison, the former prime minister. So inevitably, there was a lot of focus this week on what this now means for him. We don't know if he is in this sealed section of the report, and we can talk more about that. But the question as to can he, should he survive in Parliament at all after this report, there was a lot of chatter about whether he should go, when he should go, even some of those on the Coalition's own side, like the Nationals' leader, David Littleproud, was hardly, hardly suggesting that Scott Morrison should stick around. Have a listen. It's up to Scott Morrison whether he continues on as the member for Cook. He won uh, that election as the member for Cook. Uh, He has a contract with them. But if his heart's not in it, he should leave. I mean, that's National Party leader David Littleproud, let's remind everyone. But so the pressure's mounting, as you say, from David Littleproud, Bridget Archer, others. David, how long can Scott Morrison hold on there and why is he still there? I mean, I know he was elected to Cook and he can stay as long as he wants till the next election and run again if he wants to, but there have been plenty of moments moments since the last election where stories have floated suggesting he's about to announce he's going or he's, he's got a new role here and nothing's happened. Why hasn't he gone? What does he want to do? Do you have any insight into that? Look, there's been a lot of jumping at shadows over the last year or so. Inevitably, with a you know former Prime Minister sticking around in Parliament, there's going to be speculation as to um, when he will go and no one is expecting that he'll recontest Cook. So at some point this term, if not at the next election, he'll go. Look, I, I don't know when that will be. I do agree with the school of thought this week that he's not going to leave in this situation, right? Um, This scathing finding against him, forced out of Parliament, that's not the way he would want to go, nor do I think his job prospects would be, you know, particularly strong uh, in light of this. I would guess towards the end of the year would seem to make sense. Otherwise, once you get beyond this year, the end of this year, you might as well stick around to the next election, I think, at, at that point. But um, oh, look, I don't know. No one, no one apart from Scott Morrison uh, and certainly his uh, his colleagues in the Liberal Party aren't too sure exactly when he is likely to go. Yeah. The robo-debt report was delivered just in time for the government to make hay with it ahead of the Fadden by-election on Saturday. That's one mm. way of seeing it anyway. Stuart Robert was the former Human Services Minister. He's, he's very directly and heavily criticised in the report. He's also embroiled in some recent and corruption allegations, all of which he's denied. So he's stepping down from the safe LNP Gold Coast seat anyway. He says he's leaving politics as absolutely unrelated to these matters. But do you think the, the fact that there's a by-election right now, David, in the wake of the Robodet findings, has it put a bit of a wind in the sale of Labor's campaign in the seat? Peter Dutton certainly was suspicious about the timing. Let's have a listen to him. There's no question about why it's being dropped today because we're a week out from the by-election in Fadden so the government's trying to squeeze every political drop out of it. 
Was that the government's game plan, do you think? And is there any sign that the Robodet report will trouble the Libs in Fadden? I don't think it was the game plan because, of course, it was the Royal Commissioner who decided when to hand this report to the Governor-General to be tabled. Yes, the government did release it within hours rather than waiting a couple of days, as we've seen with some previous Royal Commissions. But And look, yes, Labor um, clearly welcome any ammunition in a by-election that they can use against the other side, and, and this is this is ammunition. But I don't think the timing was deliberate in relation to the, the by-election necessarily, nor do I think this is actually a dominant issue in the by-election mm. campaign. I've been you know, ahead of this by-election Saturday, I've been speaking to both sides of... Uh, both campaigns and look, it's not it's not a first or second or even third order issue. It, they're both finding it a little bit hard to track exactly how much of an issue robodebt is, but both agree the biggest issues in Fadden are cost of living and crime, which yes is a Queensland state issue, but one the LNP's really been campaigning on pretty hard. LNP holds Fadden by more than ten percent. Mm. It's a safe seat. They're they're going to hold it. Everyone seems to be agreed yep. with that. But is Labor, you know, they'll be sniffing it, sniffing the wind to see if they're going to make any kind of dent on that because if they get a move away from an opposition in a by-election, even if they don't win it, that's a bit of a blow, isn't it, to Peter Dutton? Yeah, it is, and for a few reasons, right? Uh, one, we're talking about a seat in Queensland not far from Peter Dutton's own seat. This is the state where he is um, strongest compared to the rest of the country. It's his backyard. Uh, secondly, we've got a cost-of-living crisis like we've we've not seen for, for decades. So that should work in an opposition's favour. So far, people may not have been attaching too much blame to the Albanese government. They didn't a few months ago in the Aston by-election, but that changes. It gets harder for the government, so that should work in the LNP's favour. And look, Peter Dutton's convinced that the voice is a is a terrible idea, and he's been talking a lot about that, as has the government all year. So if he's right, that should work in his favour in a, in a state like Queensland too. So for those reasons... Yes, there's an argument that the LNP should at least hold their margin, if not increase it. On the other hand, we're still in an early phase of a new government. And when the Howard government came in, we had a Lindsay by-election. When the Rudd government came in, we had a Griffith by-election. You look at some of these early by-elections, like Aston as well, and they, they don't really sit with the normal swing that you see at a by-election against the government of the day. If you're still in that early phase of a government, it might be more favourable to the government. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard one to read. Everyone, as you say, is expecting the LNP wins. But, yeah, no-one's too certain exactly where it will fall. We'll, okay. we'll see. Well, we'll know soon enough. It's a perfect time, I think, to bring in our guest. What do you reckon? Yes, let's do it. Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent at the Saturday Paper. Welcome to the Party Room. Well, hello and thank you. Karen, it's great to have you with us as always. It's been a a big week for the Prime Minister on the global stage. We've just been talking, David and I, about the big week in politics, but he spent the last few days overseas uh, in Europe and around the table at NATO. What's the significance of this NATO visit, Karen? Well, the reason for the NATO visit ostensibly was to be part of a four-country delegation that got invited two years consecutively with South Korea, Japan and New Zealand, and these are now known as the Indo-Pacific Four, and they are there to sort of remind the countries of the Northern Hemisphere and primarily of Europe that there are things going on in this part of the world that are relevant to them as well in the South China Sea, in the Korean Peninsula, in what happens in the Pacific and China's growing influence. So they've been raising those issues and briefing the European leaders and trying to get the NATO countries more engaged in the region. But of 
obviously Prime Minister Albanese also has the opportunity to speak to those leaders directly about trade ties and about the, hear from them about the war in Ukraine and he's made announcements around that as well. Karen, just quickly on the engagement of NATO in our region, PJK, Paul Keating had some pretty sharp words. Boy, didn't he? <laughs> in the head of the <laughs> summit as to what, whether NATO should be um, you know, getting engaged in our region at all. What did he call him? A supreme fool, did he call him? Called the he Secretary called... General a supreme fool. Yes, yes. he was scathing uh, in vintage Paul Keating what was fashion, that just as the Prime Minister was arriving on the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, he's critical of Europe's role, accused it of importing World War II to this region, uh, that it doesn't have a good record and, you know, why are we treating it with such reverence? And he had a particularly harsh words, as you mentioned, about Jens Stoltenberg, which was a little bit awkward for the Prime Minister who then had to go and meet with him. The Secretary-General said, water off a duck's back, no problem. Meanwhile, as you've referred to, most of NATO has taken up with Ukraine. Vladimir Zelensky was there. He made a pitch. In fact, it was pretty critical, two of them. Um, But the Australian government came bearing gifts, 30 more Bushmasters and a surveillance plane. This followed recent criticism from the opposition that, you know, Labor hadn't been doing enough and giving enough support for Ukraine. In fact, I think Peter Dutton referred to the last package announced by Anthony Albanese as a defence garage clean-out. Did that sharpen the government's thinking? Was Anthony Albanese on his toes here thinking, oh, we don't want the opposition taking potshots? at us saying we're not supportive enough of Ukraine, knowing it is popular here at home. Look, I confess I don't know yet whether this was in the works already and just not able to be announced earlier or whether they wanted to wait and announce it while the Prime Minister was at NATO and hoping to meet the Ukrainian president or whether it's something that has occurred after that political pressure was applied. I suspect it's more likely to be the former, but I don't know. But um, obviously they'll be welcomed, this this announcement, especially seeing as the government isn't still isn't willing to send the Hawkeyes over there, uh, insisting that the brakes don't work. Karen, the Prime Minister heading overseas this week meant he had to leave it to others to continue prosecuting the robo-debt argument after that scathing Royal Commission report. Bill Shorten uh, has taken up that task and is continuing to prosecute the case. Where do you think that's gone this week? What's drawn your interest in terms of where this whole debate has gone? Well, I did notice that Bill Shorten does take the opportunity to remind people that he generated the Royal Commission, that he was the one that helped people run the class action in the first place. Which is true. Uh, yes, indeed. So he's he, he's very interested in this uh, and has been for a long time. There's been a lot of discussion about the sealed section of the report, mm. which was mentioned in the Commissioner's letter that contains what we understand to be a number of referrals to four different agencies, onward referrals for examination for potential criminal and civil action. Bill Shorten is acknowledging the dilemma of a, of a sealed section, the frustrations of people who feel that for accountability's sake, those names should be known and the, and the, the matters for which they've been referred should be confirmed. And also for the sake of those who haven't been referred to clarify things. He's suggesting that eventually those names will come out. Now, he's not suggesting the government's going to release them, but that those, those names will come out. The government is suggesting that they need these in investigations to be completed before that happens. So it, it could be a while. I mean, if you're waiting for yeah. investigations in the National Anti-Corruption Commission or some of these other bodies, 
because yep. they can take a long, long time. And the government's frustration is really palpable, I think. The Prime Minister's referred to it. Bill Shorten's going on about it. You know, unhappy, really, that there's a sealed section, but kind of understanding the argument put forward, the legal argument from the Commissioner. And there's consumer pressure, too, for it to be released. All these thousands and thousands of people whose lives were really harmed, many of them, by RoboDebt, they want accountability, don't they? Yes, they do. And there's now talk of another class action attempt at uh, extracting more um, government penance for what happened with RoboDebt. Uh, the Commissioner didn't recommend a formal compensation scheme because of the complexity and the different experiences that people had. But that's not to say that there couldn't be some kind of further action. And she did mention the possibilities of a case of, of malfeasance in public office. She says that on the face of the evidence presented to the Commission... The elements of the tort of malfeasance in public office are made. I do not know why these coalition ministers think that they're out of the woods. There are a number of pathways for action, but also there's this question, as you say, about accountability. How do we know that people who've been referred have been properly investigated and that things have actually reached the end of the road unless we have details of those referrals at this point. So there's, there is a juggling act here between the, the privacy and the importance of making sure that people are treated fairly and not necessarily tried first in the court of public opinion, but at the same time ensuring the public can be reassured that where punishment is warranted, it's been given. Look, as, as we mentioned, there's a lot of figures singled out in the report, named and shamed many of them, a long list of former cabinet ministers, but also public servants and lawyers. Stopping short of waiting for the prosecutions, should any come from those referrals in the sealed section, what should happen to people who are named so pejoratively in this report? I'm thinking someone like a senior public servant who was head of the department at the time, Catherine Campbell, she's been singled out here for great criticism. She still remains in the employment of the Commonwealth Public Service on a very high salary, close to $900,000. People looking on going, what? Yes. Well, Bill Shorten, the minister, did say that he was taking advice this week from his department and across government about what the next steps might be in relation to those kind of people. I mean, there, there is a code of conduct for the public service. And so there are avenues short of some kind of action prosecution or something like that. There are avenues of reprimand for breaches of a code of conduct that may well be being considered. Again, for the same reason, they're very cautious about foreshadowing too much of that in advance because they need to be fair to the people involved. Mm. Karen, a final one. We're all on RBA watch, not for an interest rate <laughs> rise this time, but to find out who's going to be leading the Reserve Bank. Will Philip Lowe have his term extended or, as most people expect, uh, will he be replaced? And if so, by whom? It could all be announced as soon as tomorrow. It's still got to go to Cabinet and presumably that can only happen once the PM's back in the country. But the, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has really sharpened up the opposition's position on this this morning. Have a listen. We can't have a situation where the government is appointing somebody who is familiar to the government in the sense that they've worked very closely with ministers or with the treasurer or with the finance minister. Uh, we can't have somebody who has been appointed by uh, the Labor Party or indeed by uh, the coalition to a senior position within government. Uh, it needs to be somebody who is independent. Karen, he's effectively saying it cannot be the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of Finance, or arguably even the head of the Bureau of Statistics, David Gruen. Some of the names that have been speculated, that have been mentioned as in the mix uh, for this, a couple of things. Why do you think 
Peter Dutton is um, narrowing the field like this, and is it is it responsible for the opposition to basically rule out their support for a bunch of potential candidates? Well, it's a bit revealing, isn't it, about how the former member of the executive government views the independence of the public service. Mm. Going back to what we were just talking about, about <laughs> robo-debt, there's an assumption in what he has said that public servants can't be independent, that they are potentially politicised by Too the close. government of the day. Mm. That was an accusation we've heard around the Robo-Debt Royal Commission and it is something we've heard alleged increasingly in, in recent years and particularly in relation to the previous government. So I thought that that in itself was quite revealing. That it I mean, assumes... is, he, is he saying that they're just doing the government's bidding, these well, secretaries? yeah. We've heard something akin to that, not exactly that, but from some former public service heads about the pressure they were under and the way that they behaved. I mean, at the Royal Commission, we actually heard them say that. And remember back in 2019, the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave a speech to the public service where he famously said, don't forget, we're in charge, you do what we tell you, you're not here to push back. That's my paraphrasing of what he said, but that was the message. So I think this kind of comment from the opposition leader is a bit of an extension of that idea. And the, the new government has certainly said, and we'll, we'll see how it goes in terms of its actions, but it's said that it wants a more independent public service, that it wants to go back to the idea of public servants giving frank and fearless advice and saving the government from itself where necessary. So there's a difference in attitude there, at least in the rhetoric. But Peter Dutton clearly thinks that it's not possible and that public servants who've been serving Labor government or selected by a Labor government will um, always favour it. I'm not, I'm not sure yeah. that that's true, but it's an interesting point. And, yeah, and Fran, I mean, your thoughts on this too. I mean, the, the, the independence and bipartisan support for the Reserve Bank governor is so critical. It's, it's the most important role, I guess, to have that bipartisanship behind um, to respect what they're doing because they have to make really tough, unpopular decisions. This job only seems to come up you know, roughly once a decade. Phil Lowe's been Every there. seven years they have to decide yeah, to extend years, it or not, which they usually do. That's right. Um, but I can't recall in, in my time oppositions before the announcement um, boxing in the government like this. No, or lobbying. I mean, Jane Hume last week was lobbying for Philip Lowe's term to be extended, which is a surprise to me because really all the commentary and all the public sentiment, a lot of it anyway, over the past few months has been, you know, no, see you later, alligator. Um, Jim Chalmers, I think, as treasurer, has been trying to keep his uh, position neutral, but some in Labor have made it clear they're not too happy with the current Reserve Bank governor. So I'm struggling to quite understand the opposition strategy here. Is it just to box the government in just to create mischief or something else? Karen, mm. what do you think? Well, it's funny timing, isn't it? Because just the other day, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, was saying publicly that he had been consulting with his mm. shadow opposite number, Angus Taylor, and saying what a good process that had been and what a mm. constructive process and how he wanted that constructive process to continue on this point. So very soon thereafter, we're hearing from the opposition leader, which seems to be putting the kibosh on the constructive process. So yeah, I'm not sure where that leaves these consultations or whether the Treasurer still thinks they can have confidential discussions to a constructive bipartisan position when the opposition leader has lobbed this little grenade into the mix. Everything's very fraught right now. Karen, thank you so much for joining us again. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. See you, Karen. Bye. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the leader of the opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. Yes, thank you very much. The bells are ringing. It's time for question time here on The Party Room. This week's question is an audio question, which we love, and it comes from Tomic in Thoreau. Hi there, it's Tomic from Thoreau. Long-time listener, first-time question. My question is about the voice. 
I was wondering in the situation where the voice doesn't get approved by the referendum, whether there is an opportunity to uh, have the voice approved in state level constitutions and kind of playing that forward, whether or not that could put pressure on the other states to actually endorse the voice at a state level as opposed to a federal level. Good question, Tommy. Thank you. David, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, they could. I doubt they would. Uh, here's why. Certainly South Australia has already legislated a, a voice in that state, but they chose not to put it in the state constitution. And I think in Tomic's scenario there, if the referendum goes down, uh, we see Australians... A majority of Australians vote against uh, enshrining an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. I do find it hard to believe that states, or certainly many of them, would then take on uh, you know, uh, an issue that's just gone down. Um, I think that would be very difficult for them. I think the most likely step in the event of a defeated referendum is legislating the voice at a federal level, something Peter Dutton says he wants to do. Labor's been... A bit coy. I did ask Linda Burney about this on Insiders on the weekend. She doesn't want to speculate on what happens in the event of a no vote. It look, and it would be tricky to legislate it as well after Australians have rejected enshrining it in the constitution. But I suspect that would probably be the next step at some point. But it might might be a little while. What do you think? Fran? Well, the difficulty of that is though, legislating the voice is one thing. But what we miss out on if the referendum goes down, mm. if, the, if the no vote wins, is there will be no enshrinement of recognition of First Nations people in the constitution. Now, that element of the referendum question seems to have much stronger support than the, the follow-up, which is, and the voice is the mechanism to deliver that. So you might legislate the voice, but if you haven't got First Nations recognised in the constitution, well, then you've sort of missed out on the, the real prize, haven't you, to some degree? So it's- and, that, uh, yeah, and that whole process... Uh, gosh, hard to uh, speculate really where, you know, how you'd restart that whole recognition uh, process because you're right, both sides say they support some level of recognition. Yeah, and Just... I mean this has been on the political agenda since 2007. Right. John Howard brought it forward. It's been, had mm. strong coalition support except it never got anywhere never gets anywhere. Mm. I know there's been some pressure on Anthony Albanese to take up that suggestion from Peter Dutton, which is split it now, have a referendum just on constitutional recognition and then legislate the voice, see how it works. But Anthony Albanese is showing no sign of wanting to do that yet, that's for sure. And, and certainly Parliament's just passed legislation not accepting that, you know, doing something different. So there's a way to go before that happen, I think. Yeah, no, the, the government's eyes are firmly fixed on winning this referendum. Yep. They still think they uh, they will and they can. So anyway, Tomic, thank you very much for the question. Please send in your questions. We love getting them, especially fond of those voice notes. And you can email those to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app, of course, so you never miss an episode. That's it for The Party Room this week. Back in your feeds next week. See you, David. See you, Fran.